Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 291 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Space 1970, Luna 16 and 17. Luna 16, also known as Lunix 16, was an unmanned robotic moon landing mission that was part of the Soviet Luna program. You may recall from previous episodes that in the Soviet Union, the highest-ranking political leadership viewed success in space as an effective factor of ideological influence on its people and the peoples of the Warsaw Pact. Khrushchev's administration secured indisputable superiority for the Soviet Union in space exploration and in the process embarrassed the most powerful nation in the free world, the United States. But, during Brezhnev's administration, these achievements in the arena of space were surpassed by the U.S. The Soviet goal of landing a cosmonaut on the moon by April of 1969 to coincide with the 100th anniversary of the birthday of Lenin failed. In fact, 1969 was a difficult year for Soviet lunar exploration. In February, the first launch of the Soviet moon rocket, the N-1, which was to compete with the Saturn V to deliver cosmonauts to the moon, exploded 69 seconds after liftoff. Also, an E-8 lunar rover failed to reach orbit. In June of 69, a robotic lunar sample mission failed when the Block D stage refused to ignite. In July, the second N-1 launch failed with a spectacular explosion immediately after liftoff. Also in July, Luna 15, a robotic mission designed to return soil samples of the moon, crashed on its surface about 800 kilometers from Tranquility Base. In September, another robotic lunar sample mission failed to leave Earth orbit. It was designated Cosmos 300. In October, yet another robotic lunar sample mission failed to leave Earth orbit. It was designated Cosmos 305. In February of 1970, still another robotic lunar sample mission failed to leave Earth orbit. In July, another robotic lunar sample mission failed to reach Earth orbit. No designation was given for either of these. In total, five lunar sample missions had failed. And then, there was Luna 16. The hardware that was used in the Soviet sample return missions can be traced back to the E-8 program developed by the design bureau known as NPO Lavochkin, run by chief designer Georgi Babakin. NPO Lavochkin was given responsibility for the development and construction of unmanned lunar and planetary spacecraft in April 1965 so that OKB-1 could concentrate its resources on the development of the Soyuz spacecraft and related hardware needed to send cosmonauts to the moon in competition with Apollo. The E-8 hardware could be configured as a lunar orbiter, sample return mission, or a lunar rover. All versions of the E-8 used a standard correction and braking module called the KT. The KT carried all the consumables for its main engine, 
and attitude control thrusters. It was also equipped with an astro-orientation system and other sensors needed to support its payload in space. For an orbital mission, which was designated E-8LS, the KT was loaded with less propellant than the lander version, but it carried more consumables for attitude control needed for its planned one-year-long mission in lunar orbit. The orbiter's primary payload was an instrument compartment equipped with high-resolution cameras and other instruments to study the lunar surface and surrounding environment. For a rover mission such as Luna 17, the KT was fitted with landing legs. The eight-wheeled Lunokhod rover, a pair of ramps, and other equipment required for descent, such as a radar altimeter. For a sample return mission, such as Luna 16, the KT was modified to carry an 800-kilogram payload consisting of a toroidal-shaped instrument compartment used to support surface operations and a simple ascent stage, which was to return a small lunar sample secured by a sampling arm and placed inside a spherical 50 centimeter in diameter return capsule with a mass of 35 kilograms. The entire spacecraft was known as the E-85. In theory, the KT could deliver its payload anywhere on the moon's surface from its parking orbit, but the E-85 designers had to sacrifice some flexibility in order to limit the ascent stage to a mass of 520 kilograms and maintain the tight development schedule. The Soviet Institute of Applied Mathematics had calculated a limited set of trajectories from the lunar surface which allowed a returning spacecraft to follow a simple ballistic path without the need for a mid-course correction or the mass penalty of a complex guidance system. This simplest of return strategies only required the ascent stage's guidance system to maintain a vertical ascent profile while its KRD-61 engine accelerated the returning spacecraft to a velocity of about 2,700 meters per second. When properly timed, the return capsule would literally fall straight toward the Earth with any initial aiming errors minimized by the focusing effects of Earth's gravity. Since this approach resulted in a large error ellipse at the Earth, a radio beacon on the ascent stage, as well as optical tracking during the final approach, would allow the landing site to be determined precisely enough to ensure ground recovery crews could locate the return capsule after landing. Such a simple ballistic return from the near side of the moon was only possible for landing sites in a narrow band centered just north of the lunar equator in the general area of Mare Crisium and the highlands to the south. The exact location of the 10-kilometer-wide landing zone varied over time depending on the time of year, the moon's position in orbit, the extent of lunar librations, and the general location of the intended recovery site. Fortunately, much of this area of the moon was relatively safe for landing and was scientifically interesting as well. Now, 
I'm going to attempt a detailed description of Luna 16. Keep in mind, a picture of Luna 16 is available on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. Luna 16 stood 4 meters tall and had a launch mass of about 5,700 kilograms. The spacecraft consisted of two attached stages, an ascent stage mounted on top of a descent stage. The descent stage was a cylindrical body with four protruding landing legs, fuel tanks, a landing radar, and a dual descent engine complex. A main descent engine was used to slow the craft until it reached a cutoff point, which was determined by the onboard computer based on altitude and velocity. After cutoff, a bank of lower thrust jets was used for the final landing. The descent stage also acted as a launch pad for the ascent stage. The ascent stage was a smaller cylinder with a rounded top. It carried a cylindrical, hermetically sealed soil sample container inside a re-entry capsule. The spacecraft descent stage was equipped with a television camera, radiation and temperature monitors, telecommunications equipment, and an extendable arm with a drilling rig for the collection of lunar soil samples. Luna 16 was also capable of studying circumlunar space, the lunar gravitational field, and the chemical composition of lunar rocks, and providing lunar surface photography. Of course, to go to the moon, Luna 16 required a carrier rocket. Luna 16's carrier rocket was a Proton-K, also designated Proton-8K-82K. It was built by Khrunichev and launched from Sites 81 and 200 at the Baikonur Cosmodrome. The baseline Proton-K was a three-stage rocket. Thirty were launched in this configuration with payloads including all the Soviet Union's Salyut space stations and all Mir modules. Like other members of the Universal Rocket family, the Proton-K was fueled by unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide. These were hypergolic fuels which burn on contact, avoiding the need for an ignition system, and they could be stored at ambient temperatures. This avoided the need for low temperature tolerant components and allowed the rocket to sit on the pad fully fueled for long periods of time. Proton components were built in facilities near Moscow, then transported by rail to the final assembly point near the pad. The first stage of the Proton-K consisted of a central oxidizer tank and six outrigger fuel tanks. This separated as one piece from the second stage, which was attached by means of a lattice structure inner stage. The second stage ignited prior to the first stage separation, and the top of the first stage was insulated to ensure that it retained its structural integrity until separation. The third stage was powered by one RD0210 engine and four veneer nozzles with common systems. The veneers provided steering, eliminating the need for gimbling of the main engines. They also aided stage separation and acted as ullage motors. 
The third stage guidance system was also used to control the first and second stages earlier in flight. The Proton-K used for Luna 16 had an upper stage to boost the payload into a higher orbit. Block D upper stages were used on 40 flights, the majority of which were for the Luna and Zond programs. Now on to the mission. Luna 16 was launched into Earth orbit from Baikonur on September 12, 1970. It was then sent on its lunar trajectory shortly after. Luna 16 made one mid-course correction the next day and entered a circular 111-kilometer lunar orbit on September 17th. From lunar orbit, the moon's gravity was studied. After two orbital adjustments were performed on September 18th and 19th, the paralune was decreased to 15.1 kilometers in preparation for landing. At Paralune, on September 20th, the main braking engine was fired, initiating the descent to the lunar surface. The main descent engine cut off at an altitude of 20 meters, and the landing jets cut off at 2 meters, at a velocity less than 2.4 meters per second, followed by a vertical freefall. The mass of this spacecraft at landing was 1,880 kilograms. Luna 16 safely soft-landed in its target area in the northeast area of the Sea of Fertility, approximately 100 kilometers west of Webb Crater and 150 kilometers north of Lagranus Crater. The landing took just six minutes. This was the first landing made in the lunar night side as the sun had set about 60 hours earlier. As the cone-shaped antenna kept communications with Earth, the soil sample was taken. This was done by rotating the drill head by 180 degrees and lowering the drill arm to the surface. Next, the drill was started and run into the lunar surface to collect the soil sample. After drilling for seven minutes, the drill reached a stop at 35 centimeters deep and then withdrew its sample and lifted it in an arc to the top of the spacecraft, depositing the lunar material in a small spherical capsule mounted on the main spacecraft bus. The column of the regolith in the drill tube was then transferred to the soil sample container. After 26 hours and 25 minutes on the lunar surface, on September 21st, the spacecraft's upper stage lifted off from the moon and entered a direct ascent traverse to Earth requiring no mid-course corrections. The lower stage of Lunar 16, of course, remained on the lunar surface and continued transmission of lunar temperature and radiation data. Three days later, on September 24th, the capsule, with its 101 grams of lunar soil, re-entered Earth's atmosphere at a velocity of 11 kilometers per second. The capsule parachuted down 80 kilometers southeast of the town of Jeskagin in Kazakhstan. Once the 101-gram soil sample returned from the moon was analyzed, it turned out that it was a dark basalt material bearing a close resemblance to the soil recovered by the Apollo 12 mission. 
Luna 16 was a landmark success for the Soviets in their deep space exploration program. The mission accomplished the first fully robotic recovery of soil samples from the surface of an extraterrestrial body. It was also a political victory as the Soviets could take the position that they could send unmanned missions to retrieve samples without risking the lives of cosmonauts. Now on to Luna 17, also known as Lunik 17. Luna 17 was designed to deliver a robotic rover called Lunokhod 1 to the lunar surface. The rover was to travel to various locations under the real-time control of operators on Earth and conduct tests on the lunar soil. Luna 17 was also based on the E-8 design, but this time the KT was configured as a rover vehicle instead of a sample return vehicle like Luna 16 was. The descent vehicle was fitted with four landing legs about four meters apart, the eight-wheeled Lunokhod rover, a pair of ramps, and other equipment required for descent such as a radar altimeter. The entire spacecraft weighed 5,700 kilograms and stood about four meters tall. The Lunokhod 1 lunar vehicle resembled a tub-like compartment with a large convex lid on eight wheels. Each of its eight wheels could be controlled independently for two forward and two reverse speeds. Its top speed was about 100 meters per hour, with commands issued by a five-man team of drivers on Earth who had to deal with the five-second delay. The Nakhod 1 was equipped with a cone-shaped antenna, a highly directional helical antenna, four teleray spectrometers, an X-ray telescope, cosmic ray detectors, and a laser reflector. The vehicle was powered by a solar cell array mounted on the underside of its lid and chemical batteries. The rover stood 1.35 meters high and 2.15 meters across the top of the pressurized container with a wheelbase of 1.6 meters. It weighed 756 kilograms. To reach the moon, Luna 17 used the same type of Proton K carrier rocket that was used by Luna 16. Luna 17 was launched into Earth orbit from Baikonur on November 10, 1970. It was sent on its lunar trajectory shortly thereafter. Luna 17 made two mid-course corrections and entered moon orbit on November 15. On November 17, Luna 17 successfully soft-landed on the moon in the Sea of Rains about 2,500 kilometers from the Luna 16 landing site. About three hours later, the Lunokhod 1 rover rolled over the ramp and onto the lunar surface. During its 322 Earth days of operation, the rover traveled 10.54 kilometers and returned more than 20,000 TV images and 206 high-resolution panoramas. In addition, Lunokhod 1 performed 25 soil analyses with its X-ray fluorescence spectrometer and used its penetrometer at 500 different locations. 
Hanakad 1 was intended to operate through three lunar days, but actually operated for 11 lunar days, about 11 Earth months. Controllers finished the last communication session with Lanakhod 1 on September 14, 1971. Attempts to re-establish contact were finally discontinued on October 4th, the anniversary of Sputnik 1. A happy landing for Russia's unmanned Luna 17 spacecraft and a big step forward for Soviet scientists in Lenin's Jubilee year. The first self-propelled vehicle ever to drive across the lunar landscape is controlled from Earth. It's called Lunacard 1, and here's how this extraordinary Heath Robinson 8-wheeler was rolled down from the spacecraft onto the Sea of Rains. The size of the vehicle hasn't been disclosed, but it's been sending back television pictures and carries, among other equipment, a laser reflector. It's been used to survey the moon's surface. So now Soviet space experts have proved their theory that space exploration can be carried out by automatic equipment without risking the lives of astronauts. To Russia, Lunacard is worth its weight in moon dust. In March 2010, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter photographed the landing site of Luna 17, showing the lander and tracks of the rover. In April of 2010, the Apache Point Observatory Lunar Laser Ranging Operation Team announced that with the aid of the photos, they had found the long-lost Lanakad 1 rover and had received returns from its laser reflector. Salutations from the Rio Grande Valley. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 291 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Space 1970, Luna 16 and 17. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. First of all, I would offer sincere apologies for mispronunciation of the Russian names in this episode. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 116 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. want to credit my sources for this episode. Wikipedia, Drew X. Machina, the NASA Space Science Data Coordinated Archive, the Johnson Space Center, and Zaria. Had a few afterthoughts. First of all, for the new listeners in the audience, I wanted to explain why I covered Luna 16 and 17. You see, the podcast is based on a timeline, a space exploration history. We have reached the year 1970, and I just finished covering Apollo 13. Once we finish the significant missions, we will move on to 1971 and Apollo 14. Now, for this episode... You really need to see the pictures of Luna 16 and 17 to fully understand 
what I tried to describe. Once you do that, hopefully my descriptions will make better sense. Well, after five attempts, the Soviets finally succeeded with a sample return mission. You have to appreciate that kind of determination. Even though it was only a tiny 101 gram soil sample. Luna 16, along with 17, was a political accomplishment as well. The Soviets could now claim that they didn't need to risk the lives of men to do research on the moon. They can do it robotically. Of course, that is a pretty convenient excuse when you don't have the hardware to put men on the moon. But they were still trying to do that as well. Okay, I have placed the audio and some pictures for this episode on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Please check that out, especially the pictures. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2019, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. You may have noticed we don't have any commercials or ad revenue. We are entirely listener-funded. To support the podcast, go to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donor's page at the level they choose to donate. As well, they are entered in a contest that we draw each week. And I think some of you have not been listening to the entire episode because we've drawn several names that have not claimed their prizes yet. So you might want to listen to the end of the episodes to see if your name is called, particularly after you have made a donation. This week we were pleased to receive uh, six donations to increase the podcast over the past week. Jacob W. from Virginia donated at the Orion level. Zachary M. from Tasmania donated at the Apollo level and earned a moon emoji. Matt S. from Bristol, England donated at the Mercury level and earned a rocket emoji. Jeanette W. from Florida donated at the Mercury level. Terry B. from Alabama donated at the Mercury level. Martin K. donated at the Mercury level and earned his satellite emoji. Well, we dropped down to 217 patrons this week. So we're having a losing effort there. Our goal is to reach 300 and we are one less than we had at the end of last year. Our total donors for 219 have reached 275, with a goal of reaching 600 in 2019. Now, for the 275 of you who have already donated for 2019, we certainly appreciate it. This week, we're giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH randomly selected James McNeil. James, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I will try to have episode 292 posted by next Thursday. T-9 until episode 300. So long for now.